Today on the Doc on the Run podcast, we're talking with Carrie Tollefson, host of the See Tolly Run podcast, and we're talking with her about how you can get after it, run fast, and recover faster. So the big question is this, how are runners like us, who don't like hearing doctors say, just stop running, who know that we simply have to stay active, how do we heal in a way that lets us stay strong, maintain our running fitness, and keep preparing for the next race, and still heal without making the injury worse? Well, that is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Dr. Christopher Segler, and welcome to the Doc on the Run podcast. Obviously, it's a real honor to have Carrie on the show today. She is the epitome of a successful runner. She's been running and setting records for decades, and yet, um, still, just last year, if I understand correctly, you ran a marathon well under three hours, right? So, uh, still chasing down the times and um, and keeping up with uh, with the clock, uh, no matter what. And you know, Carrie's obviously really well known, so she's got a number of distinctions that. Um, really help us remember that she is a runner. I mean, first of all, like Sports Illustrated actually voted Carrie is one of the most beautiful athletes in the world, but make no mistake, she's, you know, she's just uh, more than a pretty face, more than just an Instagram (laughs) character. Carrie is by any standard or any measure an elite runner. These are just some of her achievements. 13-time state champion, eight of them in track, five in cross-country, uh, holds a national record for the most consecutive cross-country titles. In college, Carrie was a five-time NCAA champion, 1998 NCAA Indoor Track Athlete of the Year, uh, the first person actually in NCAA history to win both the 3,000 and 5,000-meter titles. And then after college, Carrie was a three-time national champion, And then, if that wasn't enough, she represented the U.S. in 2004 in the Olympic Games in Athens. Now, and just to to show you that she's really a real runner, she was on the cover of Runner's World magazine five (laughs) times. Uh, So uh, I don't know how many people were on five times, but that's got to be some kind of record in itself. Now, Carrie continues to work as a sports commentator. You've probably seen her on camera where she's been invited to contribute to sporting events on major networks like ESPN, NBC, ABC, and of course, covering the New York City Marathon and Boston, which we're all very sad uh, to have not uh, had happen here uh, just today, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But not only, you know, does Carrie uh, share her expertise on camera, and she's been doing that a long time, she also inspires and motivates people for her get after it, uh, you know, idea, and and also connects with people through speaking engagements and also with some training camps as well. So we're going to talk about some of those uh, things today and help you understand a little bit more about how you can get after it without getting injured, because that really is the key with endurance sports, not getting injured. So Carrie, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited, even though we will have a lot to talk about with injuries, because unfortunately, I had my fair share. Um, you know, it's just always good to be able to kind of relate to everybody, right? I mean, we all go through that. We all go through the highs and lows of the sport. And I really believe that what that's what keeps us coming back for more. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, you can't win every time, even though it seems like when you read your bio, it seems like you want everything you ever started. (laughs) Um, But that's just it is that, you know, even when you have that kind of an impressive resume, you know, you also have to have failures, right? You have to have disappointments. And, uh, and you know, some of those can be crushing, but those things never make the list. And certainly injuries are not something that people generally put uh, on, their, on their resume or post on Instagram so much. Um, but before we start talking about all those things about injury, how to avoid those things and about your running career and some of those questions, maybe just give us a little more detail on how you actually started in running and, and what really drew you to the sport. 
Yeah, you know, I grew up in a really small town in rural Minnesota, a town of 1,600 people. And I had two older sisters, and they were both really involved in all sorts of activities. It wasn't just sports, music, you know, um, acting, you name it, they did it. But partly because we lived in a small town, you kind of all had to do everything in order to make up teams or make up a choir, orchestra, band, whatever. And um, I was a, I really loved playing basketball. That was my passion. And my older sister, my middle sister, I should say, was still in high school when I was in seventh grade. She was a senior. So I went out for the cross country team so I could be on a team with her. She was this, you know, woman I looked up to. And um, it all kind of started then. I was ninth in the States as a seventh grader. And I wanted to go back to the state the next year and stand on the top block as a ninth. Or when you place ninth, you didn't get a block at the state, state cross country championships. So I remember telling my mom and dad, I want to stand on that top block next year. So everyone knows what place I was. And I did that as an eighth grader, a ninth grader, as a 10th grader, an 11th grader, and as a 12th grader. And, you know, that really is kind of, I think, what got me fired up about the sport. Not so much the win, but seeing if I could be tough enough to come back year after year with other people chasing me and lots of people thinking it wasn't going to be my year. I sort of wanted to prove people wrong and to prove myself right. And, um, you know, you're young when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, trying to kind of carry that burden of winning and winning and winning. And um, it was a blessing, but also maybe sometimes it felt like a curse. I, ha- I didn't lose a race in the state of Minnesota from the eighth grade till my very last race as a senior in track. Mm-hmm. And so I had a big target on my back, but it really made me tough and made me hungry. And, you know, I loved it. I loved the sport. I loved chasing after times and after people. And um, yeah, I've lived a life just loving running and the community around it has just been so much fun to be involved in. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's interesting too, because you have this sort of backstory of like, you basically signed up, not necessarily because you were really wanted to be a runner, but just because you, you know, somebody else did it. And so you wanted to do it too. But then it's this very clear thing of you having this clear intention, right? Like understanding that, no, I'm going to come back in a year and I'm going to do this. And, mm-hmm. and I often wonder about, you know, athletes like you who have such an impressive history and such a, you know, a remarkable career. If, you know, how much of that plays into, it, if it's really like this, you know, getting this idea of intention setting when you're a kid, or if it's internal beliefs or values that you're taught or what it is that you really attribute to the drive that it obviously takes, you know, to make it um, through that. So do you think that that came from one particular person or where do you think that came from? Was it just innate in you? I mean, I'd always wonder. You know, I think there's a little bit of everything involved there. Um, It's really funny. So my husband is not an Olympic athlete. He's a good athlete, but he played division three football is kind of like, what is that saying? Uh, Master of, all trades, master of none. Like, and he'll say that too. Like he's a guy that can go play a really good round of golf. He can play really well in basketball. He's a mountain biker, runner, all this stuff. But, you know, I think that's the one thing as a, we have three little kids and he's nervous the most about not ruining our kids. <laughs> um, and, you know, nervous that if they do have this kind of ability to be a really good athlete, like I was, um, he doesn't want to get in their way. And I, I don't know how to explain it to him. I don't know if it was that I had these remarkable parents, which I do. Mm-hmm. I really believe my parents are 
awesome. And they really raised us girls in a great way. Um, they made us all hungry about everything we did. We wanted to be good at everything, but they made it fun and mm. they kept it light. And I think I really believe our household was happy. And I know not every household has that ability or has that in them, but my parents kept our lives pretty simple and pretty, pretty happy. Mm. And so that's one big thing. I think if you have the joy to be good or to just get out there and do the activity, you will succeed at it. Yeah. And I also believe that I had this innate drive and also, you know, kind of the hunger to be really good at something. I had my middle sister was a really good athlete, but she envisioned Lian Chin, which is a kind of a popular Asian restaurant back here. And she envisioned that food at the finish line. I envisioned kicking everyone's butts to the finish line. And Cammy was one of the best hurdlers and one of the best basketball players in the state of Minnesota. But that's her way of getting herself to perform well. Mine was, I wanted to beat everybody. You know, I wanted to show myself I could do it. So we were very different. Mm. But we had this, I think, sense of joy and kept it light in our household. And so that's how I'm trying to raise my kids. You know, I want them to succeed, but I also want them to have a passion for something. And that's what my parents did. Yeah, no, that's great. I always wonder where that stuff comes from, you know, and I mean, obviously your parents gave you this great, you know, possibility of having those dreams and having them be achievable for you. And, but I always wonder, like, you know, most people, it's, if you talk to people who are successful like you, it seems like overwhelming. There's, there are people will say, well, there was one person, a mentor, a grandparent, uh, a teacher, someone who looked at them and, and saw what was special in them when they were young. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's that whole idea of having someone that believes in us, maybe when we don't believe in ourselves, uh, who can be encouraging. And that time can be so formative and so important. Now, I know the, the training camps you do, you do training camps specifically for kids that are kind of in that age range where your running career really began. And so I have to imagine that whether you know it or not, or whether they tell you or not, that you probably are that for many of those kids. And so I'm just curious, like how you, you know, came to this place where you started working with boys and girls, uh, you know, in running camps and, and really encouraging and serving them as a mentor. Yeah, I have a camp called the Carrie Telson training camp. We have it every summer, still seeing if we're going to be able to have it this summer. Um, oh yeah, but it's in July, it's, right? Yeah, yeah, July 9th through the 12th. Um, I do think we'll have to have it at a different location if we have it, if not go virtual. So we haven't made the final decision yet, but, um, it's for seventh through 12th graders. Cause that's how we can compete at the state meet in seventh grade still here in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, so my big thing is I want these athletes to understand that this sport gives us so many life lessons and any sport does, but I really believe like we can do this sport for our entire lives right? I mean, we might not be as fast as we once were, but it's just a really cool community. And I always say that, and I continue to say that, but I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be good and why I loved it was because of the people around me, my competitors, my coaches, my teammates, the fans. And so when I have these campers come, I want them to be good athletes, but I want them to be better people. And I constantly am telling them that I want them to have fun. I want Mm. them to enjoy it. I want them to learn how to be good at something, but also learn how to come back from failure or from disappointments. And so my way of yeah, giving back to this age is so important. You know, for so long, 
I think because I did have the target on my back, I did have a lot of people rooting me along, but I also had a lot of people kind of hoping that someone would come along and give me, you know, maybe that second place or, or maybe just give me that competition that um, they all wanted to see. And I had a lot of good competition. I just got lucky, I think, where I won a lot. Um, but I did, I do like to talk to the boys and girls about that hard age that we all go through where, where our bodies change. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's later for boys. Sometimes it's earlier for girls, you know, whatever. We're always going to go through at some point, a kind of a part or a time in our careers where we have to figure out life out and figure out our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so I really think it's crucial to talk to these athletes about it, to kind of tell them to stop dwelling on that fact and to use it to their advantage. I don't really like how we pigeonhole girls into making them think they can be fast when they're young, but then they're not going to be as fast when they get older. I think that's bogus. I don't like it. I think we should be focusing on the fact that, yeah, we can grow five to seven inches in a year like I did, put 15 pounds on, but we can use that to our advantage. And why do we have to think of it as a bad thing? So I just feel like there's a lot of things to be taught in that age group. And also just a lot of happiness and joy to be taught as well. This hurt, this sport hurts. You know, when we go to the track and we do intervals or we go and do temple runs or we do those long runs, it hurts. It's not an easy sport. Sometimes you want to puke. Sometimes you want to give in, whatever, but you learn so much about yourselves. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I like to teach. Yeah. Well, those are important lessons, right? And, you know, and obviously learning to take those changes, whatever they are, whether they're just, you know, as you actually change when you're young, or if you go through an injury when you're older, whatever it is, it's like, it serves us so well in life, right? Mm -hmm. And I know you mentioned this, so you you said that you had some bouts of injury. And, you know, so I guess if if you don't mind talking about that, like the, the big question is, is, that I always think is like, okay, well, you've obviously learned something from that because you're still running and you're teaching others about running still. So if you, you know, have it to do over, because there's some things that are easy to recognize, right? Like you look back and you have some, what seems like a disaster at the time. And when you look back, it's all these micro decisions lead up to every single difficulty that we have. And if you looked at your training schedule, you might be able to identify, well, if I had not done that one workout, like I already felt lousy, I shouldn't have pushed then. Like, can you look at most of those things and recognize what it is that sort of led up to those injuries? Or is it something that was, you know, completely unforeseeable, like in retrospect. Yeah. You know, I had a couple different flukes, like for injuries, I had a big tumor in my heel that they found after I had the stress, stress fracture in the, in my fourth metatarsal, Mm -hmm. uh, they filled that with donor bone. I mean, those were kind of like, well, that's not a injury. That's a different thing. That's That's like an accident. Like you get hit by a car. That's not really an overtraining injury. Right. So that was kind of my first real big injury, I'd have to say. But the other injuries, the um, overtraining, the overuse, those are the hard ones. And um, I would have to say the one thing that I did wrong is I didn't, and I wish I could, I wish I could go back for this one reason. If something was bugging me more than two to four days, I wish I would have just taken the advice of every doctor, every PT, every athletic trainer, every coach that I've ever had. And just taking a day or two right away. Mm -hmm. And I tell all of the athletes, everyone that I speak to, a day or two does nothing for you. And now more than ever, I mean, I'm telling you, I can run pretty fast still off of five days of running a week, maybe even four days of running a week. 
So I just wish that I could have taken one or two even runs out of my weekly training schedule when I was a pro or in college and just rested a little bit more. I would have been far better off. And I know that a lot of coaches or a lot of athletes will roll their eyes at that statement, but rest is so important. And especially if you feel something coming on, just give it a day or two. And I'm telling you, you will be so much better off rather than having six weeks off. Let's take two days off, you know, maybe recover for a couple more days, just taking it light and it might go away. So I just wish I could go back and do some of that. I had a lot of plantar fasciitis issues that lasted Mm -hmm. for 16 to 18 months. Um, I had osteitis pubis Mm -hmm. more from a trauma, Mm -hmm. but I kept running with after the trauma. And so Um, some of those things really lingered on, but I had other things like the tumor. I had, um, a number of hernia repairs. Mm -hmm. So I had some injuries that just were kind of, you know, I had to take care of, but the overuse ones were the ones that lingered forever. And if I could have just taken a couple days, I, I would do that again in a heartbeat. Right. So, you know, I mean, I, I go to medical conferences. I, um, you know, I speak to physicians about how to help injured runners keep running and, through that process of talking to them of, um, you know, trying to teach them what I do with runners. It's always this thing of like, I think we we're taught in medicine to do it wrong. You know, we basically, it's like this black and white thing with runners. We either tell them, okay, you need to stop running because you keep getting injured. Well, that's crazy. That's like, you know, uh, telling a, you know, your accountant telling you, you have to stop spending money. You can't buy groceries. You can't put gas in your car because mm-hmm. you're, you're going broke. It, that doesn't really make sense. And runners want to run. So telling runners to stop running is not really the solution. Um, most of the people I talk to are told by their doctors, you have to stop running. And then they go searching for somebody on online who treats runners. They find me and then they call me. And mm-hmm. it's not that I have different training. It's that I look at it differently because I've been doing it a long time. And so, you know, what I tell doctors is like, you know, it's just, I don't, I haven't put a cast on somebody in 10 years. Um, I've never, I let runners run marathons and stuff with stress fractures. You have to do something to modify the stress, but I've never had one break ever, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and I actually didn't realize that till recently I was at a conference and some doctor raised his hand and said, well, this approach you use, how many times have you actually let them break it? And you have to have done surgery. And I said, well, actually zero, you know, mm-hmm. um, but you have to do something. So nothing's free in medicine and nothing's free in training. You know, if you don't put in the work, you're not going to get the results. And if you, you know, sometimes rapidly compress the training by really strict rest, like a, a fracture boot and crutches for a couple of days, you might not have to do a boot for, for six weeks. And there has never been a time when I've seen an injured runner, when I look at him and I say, well, I'll tell you what, let's go back to your training calendar. I want to take your two biggest workouts and just scratch them off the list. We will magically make those two workouts disappear, like your long run and your speed session. And then you don't have to be in a boot for six weeks. Would you take that trade? Like mm-hmm. everybody would be like, absolutely. But two days, even the, the most intense, what you think of is the workouts that are going to build your fitness the most. If that's happening, you don't feel good. That's going to be a disaster. And if you take the two off your calendar, you just don't do them and you actually rest. Well, that's not really going to kill your fitness, but six weeks of no running will definitely decimate exactly. your fitness for sure. Yeah. But it's For tough sure. to, to, to not have that psycho- psychological thing of, you know, oh, but if I don't do all these workouts, there's no way I can beat so-and-so when I show up at the race because mm-hmm. you have it in your head, like this whole visualization thing. And it makes it very difficult. Um, 
but you know, it is the recovery process, right? Like you have to get stronger and sometimes you need a, to take one day off that you really don't want to take off. But if your coach says you have to take it off, that's probably a good idea. Um, you know, truthfully, I think most runners should listen to their coach above their doctor, but that's a, you know, a different story. Most doctors hate it when I say that, but I think it's yeah. true. The coaches, all they do is they see these patterns for an entire lifetime. You know, mm -hmm. we treat conditions, not the pattern of running injuries that coaches see on a regular basis over many, many years. So when you think about all of your accomplishments, right? So you have this unbelievable list of records of incredible things that you have done and you crushed so many of those records, some of them still standing, right? And you've been able to stay motivated. You've done all these different kinds of races. You've been able to stay focused. And of course you have this whole get after it um, idea. And we know that that means you have to work hard too. And you, but you have to take all of that effort that you put in and then through the recovery process, really squeeze the maximum benefit out of those workouts or it's kind of wasted effort. So you really do know how not only to train, but how to recover as well, very, very effectively. And I'm just curious, like how important you think just, just sleep is to that recovery process after all those hard workouts? Oh, I think sleep is huge. I mean, it's amazing how, you know, when I was training as a pro, I did get a rest in every day. I usually took a nap every single day and I was lucky mm -hmm. enough to do that. I had a contract that allowed me to work um, pretty much full time as an athlete. I did do a lot of other commentary and speaking and I had my camps and I worked at a running store sometimes, but um, I was allowed to, or I, I could have a schedule built around how I want it to, to be built around. Mm -hmm. So basically I had two workouts a day and I would rest during the afternoon, but I always had good sleep at night. And I think that's why I was able to recover. It wasn't so much that nap. Mm -hmm. It was because I would, I had this routine of, you know, 1030 at night and I would get up when I was competing around seven, seven twenty something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and I still am kind of a 1030 to 7am girl. I'll get up early now with the kids having to go to school and things. But if I sleep in, it's to seven, my body is yeah. used to that. And that's my, my rhythm. But I'd have to say that I think the big thing for me is recovery like that, having, being able to stay you know, energetic and stay excited about the workout was one thing, but having my body rested is another, you know, if you're mentally fatigued as well as physically fatigued, it's really tough to get up and to have to yeah. do those interval workouts the way you're supposed to, whether you're a professional athlete or not. Right. I mean, it's almost harder now when I'm working 40, 50 hour weeks, being a mom to three kids and I have a husband and I'm traveling and working, um, and trying to get in, you know, even if it's 30 miles a week, like, that's a big week for me now yeah. and it's hard. So I definitely think if I had any less sleep than I do now, it would lead to injury. It would lead to mental fatigue and I wouldn't be the runner I am today even. Yeah. So I think sleep is huge. Yeah. And I think we're sort of conditioned though, to look at, you know, the sleep is necessary to succeed in running. But of course the way I look at it is like sleep's crucial to not get injured. Um, you know, because you have to have these basic components of training, right? You have to put in the work, you have to do that. Then you have to be able to recover from the workout in order to rebuild the tissue that actually makes you stronger in the end. So you can continue. Yeah. And it's fascinating how many times I see athletes, somebody does a webcam call or whatever. And, and they tell me, you know, they're, they're nothing's changed. Their training's the same. They haven't really ramped up their intensity. They're on sort of their normal thing, but then suddenly got this weird injury when they've never had injuries. And then I started asking those questions and like, oh, well, you know, um, I just filed for a divorce. I have this horrible boss at work. 
Uh, I started this new work project. I've been trying to do this thing. You know, my kid's in trouble at school, something that's really stressful. And you can't do that. It's like most of us, I think, get to this place where we're right on the verge of getting an injury and we stay there. But then one of these lifestyle event kind of things that is disruptive and stressful pushes us over that edge unknowingly, but we're used to our return of a routine of training just below that threshold for injury. But you know, it's like you've got to rebuild the tissue and it, you got to have some way to do that. You have to be able to sleep. You have to rest appropriately when your body needs it. And you have to have some way to rebuild all that tissue in terms of nutrition, right? Like building blocks. And um, I know that you have your uh, Carrie's famous pesto recipe. So if we can put a link mm. to that uh, in the show notes, that'd be great. Um, but I'm curious, like, Knowing how to rebuild a tissue, obviously, when you're a professional athlete and you know that you can protect your sleep in that way because this is essential to your actual job of being a potential, you know, professional runner and you have to be able to exercise and maximize your physiologic potential, that's easy. But it's not so easy when you're trying to do what you're doing now, right? Like you've got all of these different commitments, you're spread out all over the place. It's harder to protect your sleep. And then sometimes, frankly, it's harder to protect your nutrition. So I'm curious, like, about your nutrition when training and, like, how your diet has kind of changed over the years as your training has evolved. Well, I will have to tell you that I am not so good lately. (laughs) I posted on Instagram or Facebook or something the other day that I was eating Fritos and having a Dr. Pepper for breakfast. So I'm going to be real, you know, like, I have those days. I have those moments. But also, I enjoy those moments. You know, if I didn't allow myself to have those treats and rewards here and there, I don't think I'd like to run as much as I do. Um, But I am pretty, you know, I think about what I'm putting into my body. And even though I still have that Dr. Pepper and those Fritos, I knew the rest of the day I really shouldn't be having icky stuff because that is not going to allow me to be getting the most out of the workouts that I do do. And I don't do enough now to kind of, sabotage them with my fuel. So, you know, I'm pretty simple. I get in my carbs, I get in my protein. I try to keep it simple and, and have things that I really like. And I've done that since day one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting in a good veggies, some, some fruit, my fruit has been a kind of an issue for me because it always has disrupted my stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is one thing that I haven't really been, you know, most people would think I would eat more fruit at the level that I train and compete at, but it hasn't worked with me. So um, you know, but I do, I, I have fun with food. I keep it very simple. I am a, you know, rural Minnesota girl. So meat and potatoes kind of girl. Um, and you know, I love to eat. I always tease that I run more so I can eat more and I'm fortunate. I've never really had any problems with eating. Um, food has been kind of fun for me in life. I do weigh myself probably after every single run. Mm -hmm. and it's just kind of like that ballpark range that I like to have. You know, if it's, if it says I'm up four pounds, well, then I better watch it over the weekend. Or if I'm, you know, a little lighter than I normally am, well, then I better make sure I'm getting in enough. So yeah, I've had a really healthy relationship with food and I do Mm -hmm. think it's crucial for us to get in all the nutrients that we need. Um, I've had to be creative because of my stomach and fruit, but, um, I think you'd look at my diet and be like, wow, that is manageable. And that is definitely doable. Yeah. So I mean, you don't have to suffer in your food the same way we have to suffer during, you know, mile repeats or something. Right. So it doesn't no. have to be that way. And it doesn't have to be disordered in order to, 
be successful. But I think there's also this kind of undercurrent of, you know, you have to drop weight, you have to be really light, you know, look at the Kenyans, they're all thin as, you know, if you want to be like them, you have to be as thin as them. And we just can't, you know, everybody can't be the same. We're not built the same and we don't process nutritional input the same. So everybody has to find what works for them, you know? Exactly. Um, So, okay. So let's um, talk about like secret weapons for recovery. You know, I've heard lots (laughs) of different things from lots of different people, everything from the smoothie that they drink after every single workout, every single race, whatever, no matter what to, you know, acupuncture, massage, if you could pick one thing and only one thing that you think you've done consistently that's helped you recover faster, what would you share um, that you really think really does speed up the recovery or potentially even decrease your risk of an overtraining injury by maximizing your recovery after those hard workouts? Well, you know, I do think, speaking of food, I mean, I am somebody that has a pretty good meal within 30 minutes of my uh-huh. my workout. So I I don't necessarily get something in exactly at 30 minutes, but I I put in a good meal within 45 at the most. Yeah. So I do think that's a good um, habit that I've always had. And it's mm-hmm. not just a quick bar. Usually it's a it's leftovers from the night before, even if yeah. it's at 10 a.m. I'll have fajitas or stir fry right. or whatever. Um, but I also do, we've already touched on this sleep thing. I do think that's a big thing for me. I have always been, you know, pretty used to, to quickly getting home, getting some food in, getting my shower in. I stretch a little bit and then I get ready to, to chill out, have a nap and then get ready for round two, at least when I was a professional athlete. Um, nowadays it's a little different. Um, I come home and I jump in the shower. I might get on, you know, a podcast. I might check some emails. I might forget to eat. And that's probably why I see things creep up fast. Oh, yeah. However, if things are creeping up for me now, that's where I take my a day or two off. And it's really where I've learned that rest is so important. So mm-hmm. even though my lifestyle might not be as healthy as we would want it to be if I were an elite athlete still, um, I think the lessons I've learned have kept me able to stay in the game. And, you know, so running, like I said, five days a week, four days a week at times, and still being able to break three hours for the marathon, Mm -hmm. I still can train and compete at a very high level because I still use some of those things I did as a pro. I eat pretty quickly after and I get some good sleep and I'm not going to, I'm not going to get, give away with giveaway time and my sleep. I want my time to sleep. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, it's crucial, right? I mean, that's when you're rebuilding. You're not rebuilding, Trishy, when you're, when you're training. I mean, it's yeah. when you're sleeping that you're actually getting stronger. So that's critical. Yeah. Now, and you and I talked about, like, I had this eye flip like, uh, yeah. for like a year and a half. And um, I think I was tired, but I was mm-hmm. tired in a different way. I still yeah. got my sleep. I think I was just exhausted from the day to day. Yeah. And so uh, even though I wasn't, you know, going to bed at 1 a.m. and getting up at 5, I still was going to bed maybe at 11 and getting up at six, but it, it's, um, it was a different fatigue and that fatigue is something that I think creeps up on people that are working so much and trying to train and have these crazy, you know, lifestyles. So that I think is kind of like, I don't know if it's like a sleeping bear type thing or what, Mm -hmm. but it's just there and you have to pay attention to that. That's where that chronic fatigue starts to set in. And um, that's a really hard hole to climb out of. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can't, that's the whole thing is you can't get this gigantic deficit and then expect mm-hmm. to just like dig your way out of it quickly. It doesn't work right. that way. Um, you know, one of the things like, when you were talking about how, you know, you had this vision of like, I'm going to be on one of those blocks next year. Like that idea I think is pretty common and it can start with somebody, you know, in seventh grade, it could start with somebody when they are 40 years old, where they decide, you know what, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to finish a marathon in four hours. I'm going to finish an Ironman. I'm going to do a 50K trail race, whatever it is. And, and they get sort of fixated on this thing. And then we're sort of taught also that like you need to visualize that successful goal being achieved. You need to realize that all of your workouts are going to add up and then equal to success on that day. But many of us like sign up for these events in our head and we picture that finish line, but we don't picture what we're going to do afterward. And so really if all goes according to plan, that day that you have that event, that championship event, that first marathon, whatever it is, is actually your biggest and hardest workout you have ever done and maybe ever in your life, if not certainly in that you know, year. But then I talk to these runners who will get injured sort of after those events because they don't really know what to do because they actually never had a plan for what to do after they achieve that thing. And some people will, uh, you know, go and take a vacation, but they don't have a plan for the vacation. They actually get injured because they're completely exhausted. And then they go play tennis or do something they don't normally do. And they get injured. I, I talked to someone who she ruptured her Achilles tendon playing tennis when she was on vacation. And she said, I wasn't exercising. I was just playing tennis with my husband. Well, most Americans would call tennis exercise, you know. <laughs> But it didn't seem like exercise to her because it was different than her label of exercise. So what do you do after those kind of, you know, big events, big training things, uh, you know, some race? Do you have an intentional plan of what to do in the first 24 to 48 hours after? Well, okay. So I, I just wrote this on Facebook too. As someone asked me about that. And I said, I play hard and I rest hard. And so like yesterday I did a half marathon, a virtual half marathon. Mm-hmm. And I ran it pretty hard for me. I mean, I was tired. My legs are, my legs are showing weakness now. I don't do as much lifting with my legs. And so my heart is super strong and I can run pretty fast still, but my legs are the first to give in. Mm-hmm. So I went and did this half marathon right around 630 pace. So it was like one, uh, just under 125. And I knew today I would take off completely off. Right. Uh, I had to teach a zoom class, but it was 15 minutes of strength. And tomorrow I'll probably take off. So I rest hard, but then by Tuesday, let's see, Wednesday, excuse me. Um, so two days after the half marathon, I'll get going again. So I really don't at this stage in my life, I don't really have a lot of weeks where I don't do anything. Mm -hmm. I'm very consistent, but I don't run very much anymore. I run 20 to 30, maybe 40 miles a week. If I happen to have two long runs in one week or something like that, but I am very consistent day in and day out, week in, week out, um, over the year, you know, Mm -hmm. there's really, there's not a lot of time where there might be one week where I run every third day or something like that, Mm -hmm. but my body is still being reminded of that activity. Yeah. So I think that's the big thing for me. When I was competing, I didn't always have the luxury to take a bunch of time off, but I did rest hard. Sundays were my days off or my light days. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed those, those days, both physically and mentally, just to get away from it. But I do believe in sport, whether you're a recreational athlete or somebody that's at the highest level, you have to have ebbs and flows. 
And I always say to any athlete I've ever coached, a disciplined athlete is one that will rest mm -hmm. and will take time off so they can almost get hungry again yeah. to come back for it. And I think a really good rest once or twice a year is some, it's, it's a time where you want to miss the sport so much that you can't take another day off. Right. So I do think that's a, a really good way to look at it, especially when you're competing, you know, right now I'm not competing so much. So I just kind of have this, you know, even flow of things. Mm -hmm. But if I were getting ready for to a big marathon or something, I'd have those ebbs and flows. Yeah, I think that's, you know, really tough for a lot of endurance athletes to really accept that idea. And, you know, I've seen at so many Ironman races, like the day after the race, you see people completely sunburned, you know, their numbers are still on their arms, you know, and they're going out for a run. And yeah. it's like, you know, you need at least one day off for sure. After a well, thing and to like me, not to interrupt, but if you, if you didn't completely exhaust yourself in those races, what's the point especially those dang Ironman my husband does those all the time now and they're expensive exactly <laughs> so if he doesn't wear himself out in those 12 hours you know and if he wants to go and do something the next day I'd be like ah oh, no no yeah. next time you're doing one you're gonna run harder or bike harder or do whatever Seriously. Um, so I do believe that I think you need to exhaust yourself when you're trying to get the most out of yourself and you're trying to peak you will not want to work out for a while mm -hmm. after those races because right. you're exhausted. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, but then there's this sort of mythology of suffering in runners, you know, and that it kind of like feeds the sport, right? It's this idea that, because we talk about this in training, you know, and part of running and training is really learning to suffer. And we mm -hmm. think that the more we suffer, the better we're going to be no matter what. And that kind of bleeds into this gray area of like not taking time off and all that. And, you know, when we learn to endure all the pain of training, that learned skill that we have kind of it serves us really well at the end of a speed session when we want to quit, but we know it doesn't matter how much it hurts. It's only two more laps, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but then that puts us at risk when we're actually stressed out, when we're getting sick, when we're run down, whatever. And we start drifting into the overtraining zone. And because we become so accustomed to ignore, ignoring the pain and stuff, when we're training and sometimes when we're exhausted and you say, Oh, so what you're going to have days when you feel bad, you're just supposed to do your long run. It starts to become very difficult to recognize the difference between just feeling tired, not really wanting to go run 20 miles in the rain or really and truly like this is a day you should just skip. Um, but we teach ourselves to ignore that pain that sort of signals the injury. The, the one thing I was really curious about with you is that, you know, I know kids do this less and there are a lot of things we learned as adults that are, you know, strategies to survive in the things that we sign up for that sometimes become dysfunctional and kids don't do those things. Uh, they're more intuitive in many respects. And so when it comes to training, putting in the work, you know, without getting one of those overtraining injuries, what do you think kids can teach us grown up runners? Like what have you learned from them in the training camps that you recognize that we kind of forget? Oh, I mean, every time I'm done with the camp, I mean, I am flying high for like two months, you know, just to see the excitement and the joy again. You know, I'm not trying to be all fluffy, but I do think that that's what they love about camp. They mm -hmm. love the excitement. There's really, there's some, comp you know, competitive athletes that come and they want to one step or they want to get to the finish line faster than someone else. But a lot of times they're just getting to know each other. They're learning. They're having fun. 
They're more concerned about the lip sync contest or the dance party, um, that kind of thing. And, you know, I really, what I love about it is seeing the bond that these kids have. And it, it's sometimes the fastest guy and the slowest girl that end up like cheering for each other. And, mm. you know, that's what I think life's all about. Yeah. And um, so I've really learned from them that, you know, we can find the joy, we can have fun, we can go out and run with the neighbor up the street and, you know, or we can get on a treadmill with somebody that runs a 10 minute mile next to me who runs a 630 and have this fun conversation about goals and getting after life. And so that's the best part about it. But I do find that I love hearing their goals. You know, they do have those ebbs and flows because they have cross country season and they're off and then they have track season. Mm -hmm. And I miss that. I miss having that kind of structure. So, um, you know, I kind of go back to that. I kind of think of, okay, fall season, I maybe do long race winter season, just suck it up and get through here in Minnesota. <laughs> and then, you know, spring, find another maybe race or get ready for the summer training. So I do break it up that way. After I talk with the kids, I start to kind of think about a year and how I want to plan my year. Yeah, that's great. So, um, so aside from all the work you do with kids, you know, you also do speaking engagements, right? Mm -hmm. So what kind of stuff do you share during your talks when you do speaking engagements? Well, I speak on all different levels. You know, it can be all the way from elementary schools up to corporate offices and things like that. But um, I find that I try to explain how fun life is when you're getting after it and going for something big, setting a goal. And I think a lot of times we start to float in life, especially when we don't maybe have a passion that we found. You know, I was lucky to find my passion in life. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if a lot of people find their true passion. So I try to you know, encourage people to do that. No matter what age you're at, find something you truly love that makes you tick yeah. and makes you want to be good at something, right. you know? And so when I'm speaking, I, I tell a lot of stories about how I got through injuries, how mm. I started to compete, what I'm doing now, how I am a little more relatable to people now than I used to be. Um, and I also talk about the highs and lows of life. You know, I've been through some pretty rough times and I've been able to get through it probably because of the run, yeah. you know, the way it makes me feel. And, um, but yet at the same time, the run has broken me at times too. So, um, you know, I've just learned a lot of really good things in life. And I think that anyone can relate to an athlete's story. It might not be that you're an athlete, but you can relate to heartbreak and excitement and love and, joy and sadness and all these things that we learn. But I think the big thing is how to persevere through life and to find what makes you tick. Oh, that's fantastic. All right. So let's talk about your podcast, right? Mm -hmm. So this is kind of a two-part question. Now, um, the first thing is like, I'm interested to know how you go about finding your guests because you have lots of interesting people on there, but I'm interested how you choose them. And then also of all those people that you've interviewed on your podcast, like who really sticks out as being not just one of the most interesting characters, but somebody who provided a truly interesting insight for you personally, you know, not, I mean, not as a coach, but, but for you personally. Yeah. You know, I mean, I pretty much just kind of ask whoever, um, I, I do get a lot of the professional athletes. So I get a lot of the elite runners. Um, I really enjoy going on the run. So I don't know if you've heard of it, name my C. Tally runs on the run. So I actually mic up with my 
uh, my guest and we go out and do a 5k or four mile run, walk, whatever they want to do. So I've done some of the mayors in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Um, I have done, you know, different athletes. Like I said, a lot of people that just have fun stories about, you know, setting goals and, and dreaming big, but I've also had some heartbreaking stories too, mm-hmm. where they fought through cancer or, um, you know, Gabe Grunewald was probably my favorite so far because, um, I was good friends with Gabe and she just passed away last June. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've had really cool stories and each and every one of them is, you know, respectable and needs to be heard. Yeah. That's fantastic. All right. So, um, for everybody who wants to check out your show, um, what's the best place to find them? Do you want them to go to your website? What's best for you? Yeah, probably. Ctollyron.com is where my podcast and you can find my old videos on there. Yep. We have a YouTube channel still. Mm-hmm. We went away from our YouTube videos for a while. And every now and then now we're like, maybe we should go back because <laughs> we miss them. So, um, you know, we have a lot to offer at Citali Run and we just have so much fun. And if anyone has any ideas, send them our way. We're always looking for new people and we love to share the stories of runners. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. So Carrie, listen, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule. I really appreciate you taking your, your time to come on the show today. I know you do have a busy schedule and I'm so glad we could have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I loved it. Before you go, I just want to mention one other thing. If you have an overtraining injury, if you think you have an overtraining injury, if you've been recovering from an injury, the most important thing you can do is track your pain. I've written a couple of books on this. I've provided a lot of information on podcasts about this. But the one thing you really need to do more than any other is stay focused and do something specific every day to make sure that you understand whether or not what you're doing is making you better or worse. And that all starts with tracking your pain. So go to the show notes for this episode, download the pain journal. I made it for you. It's the runner's pain journal. It shows you exactly what to track, what you should chart, and then you can use that to see whether or not your condition is actually really improving or if it's not. And if it's not, then you have to do something different. But if it is improving, that helps you understand how you can start ramping up your activity so you can keep running and get back to all of your running goals a whole lot faster. Go check it out. Go to the show notes, stockontherun.com. It's free and you can get it there now. If you have a question that you would like answered as a future edition of the Doc on the Run podcast, send it to me. And then make sure you join me in the next edition of the Doc on the Run podcast. Thanks again for listening.